Praise be to God. I'm going to ask the church to please stand with me and open to the first epistle of John. It's so strange. I usually see Thaddeus like running. You know, yeah, right, the commotion. Um, that's why I, I actually prayed for them to have a sense of loss. We should. When we're not able to be with the brethren, not to be with the church, we ought to be experiencing a loss. And wherever we are, may we pray for that, that we may be enriched in Christ. Amen. So open me to the first epistle of John, chapter 2, and we'll read today beginning on verse 12. First epistle of John, chapter 2, beginning of verse 12. John writes, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, were, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with your word, for providing us with your fellowship, for granting unto us the privilege and the miracle to be found here. May we take this for all that it is, the church gathering, the saints longing to hear from you. And Lord, as you open our hearts, as you ready our minds, may you also give us vigor and life in these bodies so that we may bring about and do your will as it is in heaven here on earth. Show us, Lord, the life of one who overcomes. We ask you this in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. John emphasized in the beginning of chapter 1 that he was writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And this, the, the epistle is written in, in a roundabout way. He would mention one thing and then go back to it. And the, 
part of the emphasis here is holiness, right? We who are a people that declare ourselves to be of God need to abide in the message of God, right? Verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There is a calling upon the Christian life to truly live that which we confess. We're not to be a confused people calling upon a confused God. We need to understand that. I was with a a group of brothers and we were praying. And at the end of the prayer, one of these brothers said to me, he's like, you know, I I was invited one time to this um, non-denominational like dinner type of thing that you get together. And in the beginning, there was this invocation. So these are people that confess themselves to be Christians and they called out a prayer and they began to pray. They said, we call upon God the Father, the Mother, the Sister, the Brother. And he just went on on a list. And all of a sudden he, he realizes like, where am I? I mean, thank God it was a, a dinner. <laughs> but sadly, you do see a confused people calling upon a confused God. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not confused. And he has not called us to confusion in and of ourselves. Although he does confuse the language of the world. And thanks be to God for that. He will confuse the means of man. But in Christ, in God, we are held securely and not confused. So we are to know that he is light and in him there is no darkness. And in the Christian, in the church, in our lives, there ought to be no willing and continued participation in lies, in darkness. If we say we are, we ought to be. And I praise God that whenever a so-called confessing Christian is not living the life that he confesses, the world is very quick to expose that. Oh, that the church would also be. But then, this is the the thing I told the church earlier this morning in our devotion. You're probably going to be hearing me mention a lot of many allusions to the Pilgrim's Progress. And that might be for the rest of our lives because one of my goals, and I'm making this public so I can be shamed if I don't do it, uh, is to read the Pilgrim's Progress every year. There's a conversation there that uh, Faith was having with Christian. And he talks about shame. He meets up with shame. And he said, shame tells me what men are, but it tells me nothing what God or who the word of God is. The shame of man is the confusion of man. It tells you, it makes you focus on just who you are, what you are, what can you do, what you can't do, everything about you. But it never points you to who God is, what his word is. That is what we have in Christ. He calls us out of our sins. He exposes us for who we are. But he's also unveiling everything that God is and giving us, right? John here in this section of the the epistle of John, verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you know and you have all knowledge. The King James Version says, and you have an unction from the Holy One. That you know all things, right? That you may know all things. You have an anointing. The Greek word's chrisma. It's this thick thing, right? This anointing upon you. 
We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And we can know all things. We can perceive. We have been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The Christian man, the Christian woman is supposed to humble himself and herself under God's mighty arm. We are to be humble, but not ashamed of the might and the power and the strength and the majesty and the magnificent and everything that you can say about who God is. We are to stand firm and steadfast on who God is. We're not to waver. That's why I said we're not a confused people calling upon a confused God. Leave that to the world. We are a true people. Redeemed. Called out of our sin. So we are to be the most understanding people upon the face of the earth. We're not to be the most judgmental people upon the face of the earth. We're to be the most understanding people because we know how sin can so ruin and pervert and penetrate every element of God's creation. Not because we've experienced it, but because God has revealed it to us fully. Because our experience is not fully. My experience is not your experience. Your experience is not my experience. If we try to judge things by experience, get what? We're going to be pretty confused because no experience is going to match another experience. But when we turn to the Word of God, when we rest upon Him, we're made solid. Not in and of ourselves, but upon His Word. And here the emphasis again, I'm beginning on verse 12. And I love this on chapter 2 is John speaking, I am writing to you. I am writing to you. Think of what we've been given in the pages of Scripture. There was a desire planted in the hearts of those men and the prophets and all of that by God Himself who inspired them to write these words to us. And John is being very clear with them here, right? That there cannot be mixture with lies. We, cannot, we are separate from the world. And he goes on to say, I'm writing to you, little children. The language that he's using here is for all of us. We are God's little children. You know, we're here at Redeemer today, we actually get a, we have a pretty diverse group of ages here. We are spread pretty well. But we are all God's children. Not the world. This fallacy, this heresy that says out there, that we're all God's children. No, the world is full of creatures. For you to be God's child, you have to be born again. That's what the Bible says. Unless, and that's what comes out of the lips of Jesus Christ, says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of the Spirit and water, you cannot enter it. Right? He came, the Gospel of John tells us this, Jesus came for those that were His, but they received Him not. But everybody, everyone who receives Him, has been given the authority, the power. And the, the word power then, it's exosia, it, it's authority. We've been given the authority. We've been declared by God to be born of God, not of the will of man nor of blood, but to be born again, to have our minds be fixed upon God. Once you are born again, born from above, now you are a child of God. That's what the Bible reveals to us. Man, in his fallen state, bears the shadow of the image of God. 
man in his new estate being born again. Now we are being formed and shaped in the image and likeness of Christ Jesus himself. That's the truth of Scripture. We cannot hide from it. And here he's writing to the church. Here he's calling, he's writing to his little children. And he already said, I'm not writing to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. It's an amazing thing to see it. He's not trying to educate. He's affirming the truth that has already been planted in us. This is something remarkable to understand, that God has planted truth in us. Right? The Holy Spirit of God indwells us. Truth himself. Christ has revealed himself to be the truth. We're not seeking some abstract truth. We're seeking truth himself. And he has willed to reveal that to us. And John says, I'm writing to you little children. God's children. We are God's people. We're marked by Christ. He begins by saying, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm going to go back and I'm going to emphasize this, forgiveness of sins. But I just want to go through this section. It says, he repeats it. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. The emphasis here is I'm writing to you little children. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Fathers, I'm writing to you for you know him. There's a true knowing. And now think of the mature in the body. We know God. We are known by God. But then he talks about young men, right? The image of strength. And it says, you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. And he says, you are strong. I want you to think about this as the people of God. We are God's children. We are made perfect and matured in Christ. And we are strong. No matter the age, no matter our capabilities, we are strong. And he goes on to list, he says, for the word of God abides in you. This is what we have. We have the word of God abiding in us. And you have overcome the evil one, the devil, Satan, I want you to think about this for a moment. By the word of God abiding in us, we have overcome the prince, the God of this age, the Bible calls him. But this is not abiding in our own strength. This is not looking to our own strength. This is looking to Christ. This is abiding in his word. Me and the children, we were talking about the, the temptation, right? The fall of Adam and Eve and how... Satan was able to to deceive Eve and how her response to him, her movement to him in responding to Satan. But then we look to Christ to see because Christ was also tempted. Right? In the desert, in the wilderness. And he was led by the Spirit to such an occasion. So when we find ourselves in temptation, there is that part of us that we're, we're going out looking for it. And if you're going out looking for temptation... You need to confess your sins. You need to repent and turn away from it. But sometimes just being led by the Spirit will lead us into temptation. Will place us in... God does not lead us into temptation, but will place us in the midst of temptations. 
And what we are to answer that, what we are, how we are to deal with that is the same way that our Lord dealt with it. Right? When Satan came and tempted him, if you are the Son of God, Jesus did not entertain the conversation. He said, it is written. And that section is beautiful because everything that he quotes is found in Deuteronomy. And what is found in Deuteronomy was the words that was taught to children. So what our Lord... I, I want you to think about that just for one minute and in his condensation, in his humiliation. Jesus being the Lord of all. I'm, I'm just going to jump ahead. There was a text I wanted to read um, in Colossians chapter 1. And you can just listen if you want to write it down. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, 23. It talks about Jesus saying that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is Christ in the flesh. This is God walking the face of the earth. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the only reason why this creation does not fall apart is because it is held together by Christ Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in flesh and bone, glorified. But yet he is there, solid, as solid can be. And somehow, by this wonder, this mystery that is God, he's holding all things together. So the reason why things don't fall apart isn't because of global warming and all these other things and you know, you can throw all that in there, but the reason why things are held together and they don't fall apart is because God, Christ Jesus, is holding it, sustaining it all. That's the confession of the Christian. I'm not saying to go down and cut every tree and make parking lots. God forbid. But we need both. But we need to have our hearts conquered by this one who overcomes all things. And here, look at the image that the Bible is given to us in Colossians. He is before all things, in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, we're not going to get to us yet. But look at the expression about Jesus. And we can search and see much more. But So think of it. Jesus there in the temptation, in the wilderness, hungry, thirsting, the devil coming and buffeting him, right? Tempting him. And the words that he utters, you would figure like God in the flesh could say some, he could put the devil in his place by some like, I don't know, break out in some new revelation. No. He uses what is taught to our children. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Oh, that we would realize and repent for not teaching our children what they ought to know in Scripture, but understand that what we do teach them, call it the basic things, if you will, is enough to conquer the devil. That's what our Lord shows us in the flesh. That those things that you call less than, I have called to confuse those that consider themselves to be more than in the world.
to think Christ used what is taught to children to resist the devil in his submission to God. Hmm. In this moment, to overcome the evil one, we have to look to Christ, depend on Christ, rely on Christ. But the language, this is a beautiful language. We have called his children. We're called to be those who know him. We're called to be those who are strong and abiding in the word of God. There is no... I love this language, especially for us here at Church of the Redeemer, because we hear this a lot. Oh, I love our little church. Okay, and that, this is my attempt to get us to stop saying that. <laughs> because we are strong. The Word of God abides in us. We have conquered. We have overcome evil. Not because we can. Because He tells us. Right? What's the little song that says, um, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. That's all we need to abide. It's not because I feel it. Because there are times I feel it, there are times I don't. Are we willing to confess that? I'm willing to confess that. There are days I wake up and I say, I am loved by God. I can feel it in my bones. I do some weird dances. There are days that I honestly, I open my eyes. I say, Lord, I don't want to leave my bed. Why am I so alone? When I can't get room to think in my own house, and yet I feel alone. I remember that lie. I remember sitting at a bar and having the devil whisper in my ear and say, you will die alone. So now when that whisper comes again, I say, no, I will not. Because my Lord was crucified for me. My Lord is here with me. He indwells me. He cares for me. Satan, it is written, I am beloved in Christ Jesus. I am embraced in God. I am one of His children. I am one of His fathers. I am one of His strong ones. Not because I feel it. Because the Bible declares it to me. The Bible tells it to me. You know, there was a group of people asking Jesus one time, saying, how can we do the works of God? And you know why they wanted to do it? Because they wanted to fill up their bellies with bread. And Jesus said, you want to do the work of God? Believe in Him who He has sent. Believe. Believe. You see, to the Christian, belief isn't something that we just sit tight and believe. There, this, this faith will have a real movement in us. A movement away from the world towards Him. And this is a, this beautiful imagery here of strength, of maturity, of childlikeness in the church. And I know I, probably, I brought a lot of books today. And I'm not going to read too much. But every time when I was reading this, I, I keep getting this image of, um, of redeemed humanity. And Lewis helped me have a sight of this. And it's in, uh, it's in The Great Divorce. And there is a, a section, which I'm, I'm going to read. It's a, it's, an, it's a page and a half. So church, 
bear with me. It's a beautiful section. It shows a picture of redeemed humanity. Now, it's fictional work. I would ask that you would go and, and read it on your own, and we can talk about it. But this is deep in the story, and there is this being, right, being guided, and he's seeing all of these things occur in front of him. And he says, the reason why I asked if there were another river was this. So he's seeing a river. All down along one aisle of the forest, the undersides of the leafy branches had begun to tremble with dancing light. And on earth, I knew nothing so likely to produce this appearance as the reflected lights cast upward by moving water. A few moments later, I realized my mistake. Some kind of procession was approaching us, and the light came from the persons who composed it. So think about this being, seeing this procession of beings of light. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, who danced and scattered flowers, soundlessly falling, lightly drifting flowers, though by the standards of the ghost world, each petal would have weighed a hundred weight, and their fall would have been like the crashing of boulders. If you want to understand that, go read the book. You'll get it. Then on the left and right, at each side of the forest avenue, came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other, if I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. So that's what I think about when I'm reading this part here. I'm writing to you, little children. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing. To you. It's as if we would never grow old because we are overcoming and we have overcome the wicked one, the evil one, not because of our works, but by the very marks in the hands of Christ. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done. So all of this is being done because of this one woman. I cannot now remember whether she was naked or clothed. If she were naked, there must have been the almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy, which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that flowed her, that followed her across the happy grass. If she were clothed, then the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the clarity with which her innermost spirit shone through the clothes. For clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. Imagine a day will come where we will no longer try to disguise ourselves but we will stand before our maker unashamedly of his workings upon our lives. Because right now we're being, what, molded and shaped in the image and likeness of Christ. So one day, and think about this, we've been talking about the judgment. We'll have this day where we will come before the Lord expecting rewards, right? But what we're going to realize is the workings of faith in our lives and what we're going to behold him as he is and be as he is. We're going to see the amazing work of our God upon our lives and it's not going to be look at what I have done we're not going to say that saints unless we're to be cast away we're going to say Lord look at what you have done look at what you have done in the midst of my joys and in the midst of my anguish but here in this story right suddenly he's seeing where this being is just completely seen and it is glorious 
a robe or a crown is there as much one of the wearer's features as a lip or an eye. So that's a great glimpse of what our crowns will be like. It'll be part of us, part of him. We're trying to understand a world that is elsewhere by means of this world, and we can't. But I have forgotten, and only partly do I remember, the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golden's Green. So she was not famous. She was not a big deal. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't you read your Milton? A thousand liveried angels lackey her. And who are all these young men and women at each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door, every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents, he asked? No. There are those who steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell, it went back to their natural parents loving them more. Few men looked upon her without becoming in a certain fashion her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And how? How is this possible? What are all these animals? A cat, two cats, dozen of cats, and all these dogs. Why, I can't count them. And the birds and the horses, they're all her beasts. Does she keep a zoo or something? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves, and now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said. It is like when you throw a stone into a pool and concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as yonder lady, to awaken all the dead things of the universe into life. I can keep reading more, but I won't. Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come into its full strength, but already... There is enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to awaken the dead things of the universe into life. Saints, we do not realize, neither do we embrace the fullness of what it means to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, what it means to have this anointing from the Holy One, what it means to walk as the true pillars of truth and light upon the face of this earth. We are shying away from the truth of Christ when we ought to humble ourselves under his mighty arm. Not to shy from the truth, but to declare it. 
I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. And the reason why I believe that we are not walking in the fullness of that life of redeemed humanity is because we do not understand or maybe we take for granted what it means to be forgiven for His name's sake. To be forgiven. I ask that question. What is forgiveness of sins? You know, and thanks be to God, many better men did a lot better thinking than I can. So Thomas Manton, this is the answer he gave. He says, it is, forgiveness of sins is the judicial action of God by which he doth fully release the penitent believer from the guilt of all things committed against his law without requiring satisfaction of punishment at his hands. So forgiveness of sins is a judicial action of God. First, that's where it begins. Notice the text here. He has forgiven us for his name's sake. So forgiveness of sins rests in God and God alone. It is his judicial action by which he has fully released the penitent believer from the guilt of all the things committed against his law. There is now no guilt, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The Christian does not walk around chained to guilt. We don't. Bound to the thing. We don't drag it. We don't carry it with us. We leave it on the cross at Calvary. If we try to do this on our own, we will. Because we're trying to earn it. See, this is the thing that we have to understand. There's two sides to forgiveness, right? We're, every time we hear it, it automatically we think about us. We never think about God first. So let us start with us and think about it. Our forgiving is an act of love and obedience unto God. Not a performance. And when we forgive, and our forgiving is limited. It's not God's judicial action. It's our forgiving. God has granted us to forgive one another as he has forgiven us. There's a beautiful section of scripture found in Matthew chapter 18. Just so, in case not everybody knows the story, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. I'm going to read this parable and then we'll, we'll look at how we ought to forgive and how we don't forgive. Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, for those of us that don't know talents in that time, it was a monetary unit that was about 20 years wages. 20 years wages, one talent was about 20 years worth of wages. It's pretty intense. Isn't it? 
I don't know what kind of debt that was to run, but that man ran quite a high debt. Now, this is before his master. This is Jesus showing us the kind of debt that we owe God. We can't pay it on our own, brothers and sisters, and if we attempt to. This is why when we don't realize the gift, and we do, and we ought, when Paul wrote in Colossians, right? Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. The blood of Christ is the one that is enough to pay this debt. But here, Jesus is telling this parable, and this man owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Could he? But yet he's imploring, isn't he? Is he banking on his ability to pay? On his ability, on the ability of his master to have mercy on him. Something beautiful in that plea and, and revealing to the limit that we have. So the servant fell on his knees, implore him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a denarii was a day's worth of labor. One denarii, a day's worth of labor. One talent, 20 years worth of labor. You do the math. So his fellow servant, denarii, in seizing him, began to choke him, saying, so this guy laid a hand and grabbed the guy by the throat. And began to say, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Mm. You know, in the Brazilian community, when we hear something like that, you know what we do? Mm -hmm. that's what we do that's our expression like mm, Lord have mercy how shall we forgive we don't forgive because it's something that we can in and of ourselves we forgive because it is an expression of our gratitude to what God has forgiven us if God has forgiven me how can I not forgive if I have embraced the forgiveness of God, if I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, how can I not forgive? So my forgiving is a reaction to the forgiveness of God, to that judicial action of God. My forgiving is a full submission to His will. Lord, it's not in me to forgive, but I'm not going to look at the unfairness 
that has been done unto me. The injustice, right? You can call it what you will. I'm not going to look to that, Lord. I'm going to look to the cross. I'm going to look to my sin. I'm going to look to the depth of the pit that you've taken me out of. I'm going to look at, see what you, how you have emptied of yourself in Christ. How you in Christ have submitted to all things so that for the sake and the glory of your name, you might reconcile me to yourself. And like the Bible tells us, this reconciliation may begin in us and through us, but it ends in the reconciliation of the universe, a new heaven and a new earth. My children and I got in a conversation, right? Like, if animals don't have souls, like mankind has, a man has a soul, you know, will there be dogs in heaven and all these conversations? And I offended some of them. I said, well, there will be creatures, there will be dogs, but not that dog. Because we want that dog. We want that sweet little thing, right? That is ours. But the Bible reveals that, that only man... And this is a first, only man is created in the image and likeness of God. Only man is given this, this glory to bear the image and likeness of his creator. There's a mystery in that. But yet, through this work that God is doing, all things will be reconciled to him. We are to fix our eyes upon Christ and upon that. And out of that, that the overflow of his forgiveness ought to be abundant in our lives. The power, the reach of God in us is that overflow ought to be, must be, has to be. What Jesus is telling us in this parable is if that is not, when we stand before our master, we will have to pay an account. We will have to pay for our own sins and all eternity will not be enough. To see, this, what we do in forgiving one another, understanding, right, that he is writing to us because he has forgiven us for his name's sake. When we begin to forgive one another, when we begin to, to release and be part of that, that is nothing more and nothing less than our spiritual or reasonable service unto God. We are to consider ourselves as unprofitable servants. See, this is our living worship, our true spirituality, being drawn from the Spirit of God, being drawn from Him. When I'm, if I'm trying to forgive you, if I'm trying to bestow upon you the same blessing that God has blessed me with, I'm resting on my own strength. When it comes to forgiveness, I don't try. I rest in God. When it comes to living this out, the Christian call, living out as one who is a child of God, who is one who is mature in God, and one who is strong because the Word of God abides in us, and we have overcome Satan, the whisperer, the tempter, the deceiver, the father of lies. The one who wills to just have a foothold in the church. The Bible tells us to not give a foothold to the devil. All he needs is a foothold. Now, once I heard a pastor say that there was a pastor praying at church and the devil came at his church. 
He says, can I come in, please? And he said, no. He's like, please, come on, let me just, let me just, you know, not my arm. Can I just put my arm in the church? And he says, no. No, no, the, the left arm. I can't do much with the left. Let me put a foot in. No. Let me just put the tip of my nose. The pastor says, okay, fine. Just the tip of your nose. You know what the devil did? He walked in backwards. We give so much room to Satan, don't we? And we think all he wants is to play games. He wants to ravage our souls. He wants to divide and conquer. He wants to shame you. Right? And that's what faithful and Christian we're talking about. He wants to tell you what man is. But that's all that he can do. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan, for you mind the things of man. We don't mind the things of man. We mind the things of God. We're given to know the things of God. And now when we think about our forgiving, our, this is part of our spiritual worship, our reasonable worship to God, right? What Romans says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So this is what First John is talking about. The church, we are to be a holy people. We are to live in the pursuit of the holy Yeah, we are to be the most understanding, the most forgiving, the most embracing of healing. Notice I said that very, most embracing of healing. We don't embrace sin. We invite all to come. I don't care who they are. Come. Come as you are. But God will not allow you to bring your baggage with you. God will not allow you to keep your sin with you. All needs to die. That's the call of Christ to the cross. And all needs to be left there. But see, the Lord's forgiveness is out of and in His authority. See, He is the judge of the world, the Holy One, as Scripture reveals, whom we will all stand before and have to give an account. See, when the Lord forgives, it's out of His authority. Now, just to to rush things along, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, this is why we turn to Him. He is the creator of all things. That's why I read what was in Colossians. That he is the image of the invisible God. All things are sustained in him. We have sinned against him. He is the offended one. So when we forgive, we are trusting in God to forgive. We have been forgiven. But when we forgive others, we forgive and then we pray that the Lord will forgive them. Because I don't know to what extent their sin has gone. And we get a beautiful image of that in Acts chapter 7. I'm going to just read there. This is a portion of Stephen. He's a young martyr. He's being stoned. 
right? A deacon, he's serving the house of God. And now when they heard these things, and if you want, when you go home, go and read chapter, this section is in chapter 7, that area, this is prior um, to the persecution. This is during the persecution of Saul of Tarsus. But we get this glimpse of the, the, the meaning of forgiveness also in the life of Stephen and a deep understanding of it. Because after he had literally told the whole history of Israel and his face shone like an angel, it says that when they, they the Jews that were hearing this, things were, it says that they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into the heavens and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. There is a a man who is free to have an image of heaven in his sight. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So here's the life of a forgiven saint echoing the voice of Christ on the cross. Father, into thine hands, right, I give my spirit. Lord Jesus. So this is a great picture for those who say that, oh no, Jesus is not God. Stephen confessed him as God. Stephen confessed him as the Lord who had ownership of his spirit. As the one who gave him breath. Here, Lord Jesus received my spirit and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. See, he had forgiven them. But he was saying, Lord, I I can't forgive them as you can forgive them. See, forgiveness is mine to give, but not mine to define. And all he can do and all that we can do is to pray deeply and truly and if needed be on our knees and loudly for the forgiveness of those who harm us for the forgiveness of those who we behold daily and for understanding that there are some that will not be forgiven we won't have time today to go through this whole section but I want you to understand when he says here, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The forgiveness of sins is for the sake of God alone and for his glory. And what is for his glory is for our benefit and well-being. And now because we trust in him, we overflow that. But if the love of the world and the things of the world is what is rooted in us, we won't have this forgiveness to give. If our eyes are fixed, right, upon the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, if these things are what is fixing in us, we are not in the Father. And the moment that these things are, that we are, in a sense, unshackled from these things, our prayer will match the prayer of the saints and martyrs gone before us. 
We will trust in the provision of God in Jesus Christ and we will gladly leave it at His hands. And the importance for this comes in verse 18 of chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. Now he's, he's talking about here, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Can we fight this battle on our own? We can't. We are behind enemy lines. We're going to have many beautiful, truthful, and glorious moments here on earth, in this side of eternity. We, especially with one another, in our fellowship, in our rejoicing. Moments like this when we're gathering together around the Word of God to hear what God has to say to us, but to know what He has to break in us, what, what the tendency of the old creature that's still trying to right, stay here and be enriched, and we need to be enriched in Christ and have our life being drawn from Him. But we, get, we can't get too comfortable here. Because we're living in the last hour. And what is coming against us, the flesh cannot fight. I don't care how well you can organize a prayer meeting. I don't care how well you can put on a potluck or do youth ministry and kids' church and organize parking lots. And I don't care about all that stuff. What the Bible calls us to understand is that we have heard that Antichrist is coming and so now many Antichrists have come. To be Antichrist is to be against Christ but instead of Him. You see why we need the Word of God to abide in us, to be strong in Him. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. Think of it like this. Before we get into the image of, of battles, right? This is the last hour that you have to forgive and to pray for the forgiveness of others. You know that? The next time you are offended, then you will be offended very soon. Especially if you're sensitive like me. My wife says, you're too sensitive. Right, Tiffany? I'm sensitive. I cry in movies and I take offense to things that I shouldn't. We will be offended, but the next time that you are offended and that you determine in your heart, because Jesus says, unless you forgive from your heart and then you see that your heart wants retribution, say, this might be the last hour for me to forgive and pray the Lord will forgive. Because see, we can forgive, but we don't know if the Lord will forgive. I don't know the state of that person. So we pray, Lord, forgive them. Lord, open their hearts. Lord, cry out to them, call them out. Because we're living in this last hour. And it's an hour of deception. It's an hour of lies. And it's an hour that if we are not strong and abiding in the word of God, and it, like the Bible alerts us, if it be possible, even the elect of God would be deceived. John talks about this great distinction even within the body. 
Maybe next Sunday we'll pick up a little bit more, but I'm just going to read this and, and go into what I want to show you about our days that we're living in. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. See, there's some out there that say, once saved, always saved. That's a lie. What the Bible teaches is, once saved, always persevering. Always enduring. Continuing. Continuing to be strong when you don't feel that you're strong. Continuing to believe when doubt has crept in. Not because you're trying to to make this thing, bubble this thing up in your own heart, but because you're looking to Christ, saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, I trust you. Lord, I don't know what to say right now. Well, I do know what to say, and it ain't what she wants to hear. It isn't what he wants to hear. But I need to say what you want me to say. And if you have nothing good to say that pertains to God, say nothing at all. One time, I, I don't know if it was a Puritan, I don't know who I was reading, but I heard this beautiful thing. It says that God is so good to us that in dealing with our tongue, he has given it its own prison, your teeth. <laughs> so when your tongue is about to say that thing that you know that pleaseth not your Lord, bite it. Well, maybe hide it behind your teeth. Don't bite it off, right? Now, last week, Pastor John Paul said something amazing. We are constantly fearing and seeking the approval of others, but never are we seeking the approval of God. And this is the great secret to the Christian. We are already approved. So to the Christian, to seek the approval is really to just boast in in the grace of God. To the Christian, it's that intimacy of the child that so loves his father and so wills that he is unashamedly going to go up and just sit on his dad's lap. Say, hey, dad. I'm not going to be selfish with who you are. I'm not going to hold on to you just for me. I'm going to lay hold of you with all the strength that you've given me. And I'm going to expose you to the world. So come what may. I will declare your goodness. I will live your goodness. I will submit to God. I will resist the devil and he will flee. Because there are many antichrists. It's already come. It's not going to come. But there is a great distinction. Those who continue, those are the ones that are of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One that you have all knowledge. I write to you. Not because you do not know. And look at the emphasis. I write to you. Next time that you're bored, right? And you're, oh, I just don't, I know I should read the Bible, but I can't read the Bible. No, no, you must read the Bible. It has been written for you. It has been written for me. Not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Now this is, I'm going to end with this section. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Brothers and sisters, this goes for nations and governments too. We're living under a time that blatantly the powers that be deny that Jesus Christ is who he is. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. The times are upon us. It's not going to come, it's here. We're living in a system that has been blessed by the confession of Jesus Christ and now boasts in rejecting him, denying him, refusing him, barring him. But we got good news. They can try to shut him down as much as they want. They can try to bar him, keep him out of places as much as you want, but the gates of hell will not prevail. Christ has overcome. What we need to be on guard is, will we join the forces that be of rejecting him? Or will we humble ourselves under his mighty arm? I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. You have forgiven us, O Lord. You have forgiven us. Do not let us be wicked servants. Do not let us be wicked servants. For now, Lord, judgment is private. But the day is coming when judgment will be public. And your glory will be seen by every eye and heard by every ear and confessed by every mouth. Jesus Christ, that Jesus that was nailed upon the cross, that Jesus that rose from the grave, that Jesus that ascended on high, that Jesus that is coming again is Lord of lords and King of kings. Oh, Holy Spirit, strengthen us and do us with power from on high. Unveil to us the face of Christ so that we can see how all things which pertain to godliness and holiness has been given to your church. And in the midst of our floods, Lord, in the midst of our emptiness, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our loneliness, in the midst of our pride, May we rest in you and hear your voice as those called by your name. 
and turn away from all those foes and rest upon you. And rest upon you, Lord. And rest upon you. Oh, Heavenly Father, bless us here, Church of the Redeemer, as we walk in you, as we talk in you, as we are healed in you, as we are drawn close in you, Lord. That we will serve your will as it pertains to your good counsel and not to our scheming. Write this upon the tablets of our hearts. We ask you in Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask the church, please stand.